Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Elizabeth Cohn and Cyril Ghosh to talk about um, their new book, Citizenship. And this is part of a series called Key Concepts in Political Theory. And this is published by Polity Books. The book was published just this year in 2019, I believe. Um, and it's, it's kind of a shorter book, um, but it is complex and fascinating and gets to the heart of the complexity of the idea, the concept, and an understanding of both the term and the application of citizenship. But I'm going to let Elizabeth and Cyril talk about that. First, I'd like to introduce Elizabeth Cohn and Cyril Ghosh to the New Books in Political Science podcast and ask them each to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this project. All right. Thank you so much, Lily. It's great to um, get to chat again about political theory with you. Um, I am a political scientist. I specialize in um, citizenship theory and immigration, and I've written a couple books on related topics, Semi-Citizenship and Democratic Politics in 2009 and The Political Value of Time in 2018. And I think that um, this project came to us because there's uh, so much overlap between both what Cyril and I do and then this kind of general idea of introducing what questions about what citizenship means. Um, and hi, Lily. Thanks for doing this. We're very happy to be here. Um, I'm Cyril. And uh, like Elizabeth, I have, I'm also a political scientist. I, um, I write on three different related areas, like American political thought, sexuality and politics, and citizenship and immigration. And yeah, and uh, we, I don't know, yeah, and then we wrote this book. <laughs> How how did you each come to the book itself? I mean, obviously your your backgrounds and your your um, academic um, and scholarly pursuits are in the areas of citizenship and and in Elizabeth's case also immigration. Um, but I also wanted to know about how the collaboration came about, um, particularly in this in this particular series, key concepts in political theory. Uh, so I had a conversation with the editor for the series uh, some time back, and the series is it was at that point 
had a few entries. It's it's a relatively new series. Polity does key concepts books, and uh, they wanted to expand into political theory. I think it was a really good decision by the editor to view citizenship as something that should go in the the theory series rather than in the general series because it allows a lot of conceptual work that um, that interrogates things people often take for granted about citizenship. So we had that conversation. And I asked um, if we could team up, Cyril and I. We, um, we've been good friends and colleagues for a really long time, and I knew that we would work well together. Uh, so I um, talked to the editor and I talked to Cyril, and, and um, we decided that that would be a really good fit. And, and so I, I wanted to then ask you about this, the sort of the theoretical approach. This book is... Um, is complex, as I said, but it also kind of tries to get at not only the idea of citizenship, but also why it's a complicated concept. Um, and and that's kind of where you lead off in the introduction and the introduct and the and the first chapter of the book. So can you talk a little bit about? Why this term itself that, again, we sort of think we know what what we're talking about when we talk about the term citizen and citizenship, but in fact, we might not be as clear on that as we think we are. Sure. Um, I, as I mentioned, I teach uh, graduate and undergraduate classes on both citizenship and immigration, and it is the case that when we start the semester, I have to um, both remind myself and sit down with all the students and say, okay, this word, you're using it in a bunch of different ways. Chances are mostly you're using it and and will not be able to stop using it as a proxy for simply having a passport. So uh, if you say so-and-so has citizenship, you're you're referring to um, one kind of facet But if I ask you um, in the context of talking about people's political engagement, we might bring up the word citizenship and mean something totally different that has nothing to do with whether somebody has a passport or not. So that's just a way of entering a conversation about this essentially contested concept, citizenship, and, and the fact that we're not just kind of having some semantic slippage or disagreement. It just is a really complex word and concept. Um, I might add a a couple things to that, to to what Elizabeth is saying. Um, uh, Both Elizabeth and I have um, previously written stuff where we had to clarify something as an essentially contested concept. So um, Elizabeth's book on semi-citizenship, she actually talks about how it's really hard to pin citizenship onto one precise and definite delimited definition and i've i've had to do this for uh, to clarify the concept of the american dream which is the f- uh, the first book that i wrote and routinely in classrooms we we run up against in political theory classes we run up against concepts like i don't know individualism or ideology um, or politics even and we've had to say to our students that you know there's you know these these concepts are not easy to define, like they have multiple meanings. And so uh, Cherry Eagleton, for example, talks about like, you know, six different forms of uh, meanings that the word ideology can, can facilitate or enable. 
uh, and Stephen Luke's has talked about individualism and and so on and so forth. Like a word like religion, for example, you know, it's really hard to say what the definition of the term is. And so we do this on a daily basis with our students, but also we've written on this individually, separately. So, and so that's the thing that we do is we try to explain that although it is really hard to define the concept, it's not like an anything goes situation. There are core things we are talking about when we use the word. And and so that's where I wanted to take you next, which is the sort of the, after the introduction, the chapter, what is citizenship? And again, you know, we want, we want people to potentially buy the book. So you don't have to tell all the secrets. Um, but, but as you say, this is a contested term. It's a complex term. It's more than, you know, this idea of having a passport or exercising the right to vote. Um, or how you got your citizenship? Is it birthright, naturalization, through marriage? Um, so can we talk a little bit about how the book sketches out this um, approach to thinking about what is citizenship? Yeah, um, I think that one thing to say right before I say anything else, and I know Sarah will want to add to this as well, but, um, is that this is uh, one cut at defining citizenship, and there are plenty of good ways to go about doing this. So um, we start with looking at kind of where the authority to decide or hand out or assign um, citizenship comes from. And so the act of making decisions about who who can be called a citizen and who isn't isn't a citizen. Um, is the act of boundary drawing and where the authority for boundary drawing lies frequently, most frequently, we think it it lies with the state um, and that states assign citizenship as a status. But there may be circumstances in which people see um, other authorities coming into play. So we do a lot of work talking about um, the importance of the state we also look then at the content. What is it that's that's being offered when people um, say that they have citizenship? And we we look at you know thinking about citizenship as a as a rights granting um, kind of institution. And then we also look at the types of thinker that we look at thinkers who think of citizenship as um, not just rights but also certain types of engagement. We look at what citizenship is, is um, also what citizenship is not. So other forms of membership that one might be tempted to think about as um, citizenly memberships, but that we think are quite distinct, not just subjecthood, but also lots of other types of organization memberships that you can have um, as a way of, of in a a kind of negative way. not let light um, saying this is what it's this is what it's not it's not nationality it's not subjecthood it's not other forms of group membership um, I don't have anything much to add to what Elizabeth is saying except that I know at some point during the podcast we're going to get to the 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 discussion about determinants of citizenship and how we grant that like is if it's birthright is it based on territory is it blood lineage so I'll just wait. For that to happen, and we'll say more about uh, re- this. Well, then I'll go things. right there. Um, that's easy enough. 
um, because I think I think that's also where you know our students and most of most of the you know sort of the populations of a lot of the countries that we start talking about. Um, that's where people immediately go when they start to think about citizenship. Um, is like, how did you get it? Um, what are the rules? Um, and, and who's determining, I know that you're both kind of expert on who's determining what the rules are with regard to the attainment, um, or the taking away of citizenship. So please, Cyril and Elizabeth, talk a little bit about those determinants. Uh, I can I can uh, begin this part of the discussion. I think um, I mean there's been some contestation about what the right answer is in in terms of how we decide how to grant citizenship. Now, one of the ways we do this is that we say you, one has birthright citizenship in the U.S., for example, since the Fourteenth Amendment, all all persons born within the territory of the United States is a citizen, and the, what that means is if the place of birth decides. So if you're born on the soil, and, and the Latin expression used to describe this is use soli. And a competing form or way of granting citizenship is the, uh, the doctrine of use sanguinis, uh, which is uh, the idea that there is the right of blood. As in, if I'm genetically connected to a citizen of a state, I would then be entitled to citizenship of that state. So these are the two predominant ways in which, at least the way citizenship is practiced, that uh, the way it is granted, we do this. Now, of course, there's a set of other ways in which one can become a citizen. So um, one can naturalize into a country. One can marry into it, uh, depending on the country. And uh, actually, depending on the country and the time, uh, the temporal context. There's also adoption. So one can be adopted by a, a, a citizen or a pair of citizens and acquire citizenship in that way. Now, is there any one right answer? Uh, it, and we describe in the book that actually it's often the first reaction among people living in liberal democracies is that birthright citizenship or citizenship by soil is or territory is the right answer. And blood lineage is sort of, it's kind of, it's looked upon as slightly exclusionary. But as we describe in the book, that uh, the reality is actually a bit more complicated. The antecedents of how those things developed are, um, make us uh, think that th there is no one right answer. Of a combination of all of these policies, use soli, use sanguinis, use matrimony, adoption, naturalization, all of these things uh, together uh, should inform uh, uh, citizenship in liberal democracies. And I was wondering then in terms of um, talking about this in context of liberal democracies, we're talking about um, developed countries. We are also talking about developing countries um, and countries that may not be um, liberal democracies as well. And you sort of dive into some of this, the the origins of these concepts with regard to political theory and this is again the book is in the context of a series in political theory and so i i'd love for either of you or both of you to talk a little bit about where we find some of the theories within the corpus of political theory um, on citizenship and how that has contributed to some of our thinking on it 
Yeah. So the the history of political thought on citizenship is often kind of um, one of the most surprising um, sets of ideas to people who are thinking casually about citizenship but haven't um, done a deep dive. And something that's it's almost hard to convey if you haven't read the sources is how different citizenship in its modern um, form is from any of its antecedents. The um, ancient traditions of citizenship and particularly um, Greek and in particular Athenian citizenship were highly exclusionary and not just within the boundary, not just exclusionary in the sense that there were boundaries and outsiders, um, territorial outsiders, or even um, outsiders uh, in terms of their blood lineage, you sanguinis. Um, uh, it, those were not the only boundaries of exclusion. The boundaries of exclusion were drawn around um, affluence, so the ability to have enough leisure time and independence from need to be able to think about the good of the whole and um, and kind of being the head of one's household. Th- those were really important um, prerequisites for, for citizenship. So the kind of idea of the ability to be equal was one that was very narrowly construed and excluded women and anybody who was um, who was not a property owner and was not self sufficient, and you you see that um, really starkly in the politics in Aristotle's politics, and it's not until we start to get um, liberal thinkers and only certain liberal thinkers that we open up the idea of citizenship to more of the population or open up the demos to more of the population. Um, Ural's done a lot of work on a lot of thinking about Locke and he may want to jump in here a little bit and talk about the ways in which this transformation starts to happen. Uh, yeah. So uh, what we do is we, um, we use um, sort of nodes, historical nodes to signal how major transformations have happened from the ancient conceptualization to then we we sort of give some details about social contract theory. And we talk about Locke and Rousseau in particular and the two very starkly different models of citizenship that they are thinking of, although they are not using that specific word. And in Locke, of course, the idea is that, you know, uh, it's the consent of the governed, sovereignty is in the people, and so on and so forth. And it's less about political participation. In Rousseau, it's quite a bit about political participation, the active participation of all citizens together in a deliberation, in a deliberative uh, democracy. And then the next note we, uh, we sort of look at is the, the American and French revolutions. And Jefferson, of course, is uh, uh, famously involved in the uh, text of both the American Declaration of Independence and the, the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And in those iterations, we see a real like, formal codification of this idea of equality for the law, the consent of the governed, and uh, at least in one of those instances, the right to revolution based on a long train of abuses against a tyrant. And so this is the 
beginning of the sort of what then becomes the contemporary liberal idea of citizenship, which is uh, which then is taken by some to be in sort of the sort of the dialectical opposite of a civic republican idea of citizenship. When and Elizabeth and I are we 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 are quite careful, I think, to point out that this distinction between a liberal contemporary notion of citizenship and a civic republican contemporary notion of citizenship that is uh, invested in uh, political participation, um, are there actually not need, there's no neat divide between the two concepts. I mean, they are sort of, they're inflected by each other. They're, I mean, there are differences, but they're not quite as, there are no chas- major chasms between the two as some people would like to argue. Now, now, and you did say something about critical theory, and I think uh, uh, one of the things we do is we point out that once we have this established canon of two, actually, let's call it three, basically, ways of thinking about contemporary citizenship, one is the liberal form, the second is the civic republican form, and a third uh, coming out of Roger Smith's work on uh, multiple traditions where, we, where uh, Smith identifies in the U.S. that um, various ascriptive hierarchies have always already coexisted with both the liberal tradition and the civic republican tradition. Now, after that critique of these two main ideas, various people have 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 said many things challenging the concept of citizenship as it is understood in uh, in the in the dominant traditions like the liberal and civic republican, and and. When we describe those critiques, we uh, point out, among other things, uh, uh, you know, the, the feminist critique of citizenship, for example, the uh, queer critique of citizenship. Um, uh, we talk about uh, the multicultural citizenship, for example, which talks not only about, at least in Will Kimlicka's case, not only does he talk about liberal individual rights, but also group differentiated rights and how these two things can coexist. And so on and so forth. And, and um, there, we do a couple of other things when we are uh, reviewing the literature on the critiques to contemporary uh, citizenship. And one of the things we do is we talk about the, the non-state-centric approaches to citizenship. And within that sort of rubric, we discuss ideas like post-national citizenship, sub-national citizenship, quasi-citizenship, dual citizenship, and so on. And finally, Sorry. And finally, we talk about the non-anthropocentric approaches, like, you know, the citizenship of, of the environment, of, of animals. And some theorists have critiqued the dominant iterations of citizenship as being under-inclusive and that we should really think in terms of uh, a broader set of things when we're thinking of citizenship. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about the sort of um, critiques of citizenship that you do delve into in terms of understanding how we have perhaps evolving, perhaps not, um, understandings of what it means to be a citizen and, and sort of how we, we individually position ourselves within groups of which we are citizens or um, from which we potentially feel excluded because of, you know, the, the contours of inclusion and exclusion within this concept. Um, can either of you talk a little bit about some of those critiques um, of, you know, sort of the more traditional understandings of citizenship? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the, just to um, double back a little bit um, and and slot in a little um, more robust sense of contemporary thought on um on citizenship, you know, there's there's a canonical literature that looks at or that treats citizenship through a, a liberal lens and and looks at citizenship as a set of rights. Uh, the classic text is T. H. Marshall for many reasons. Uh, that's both a very useful foil, but is inadequate and. Uh, Marshall looks at these kind of civil, political, and social rights and their relationship to each other and sets up very nicely the fact that, or the opportunity for people um, to look at the tradition and say, oh, all people do not have all of these rights. And that's, uh, I'm certainly not the only person who's worked in that area, but I have worked in that area. And um, to, so you can start to kind of see that the, this idea of social closure, to use Rogers Brubaker's words about citizenship, that citizenship is really about social closure, or even if we were to expand that and say citizenship is about, is really, um, its goal is, is political closure, um, doesn't really work that way. In fact, you know, um, the boundaries of citizenship can be p- quite porous in both directions. People can, can get pushed out of the citizenry or pushed out of um, some of the um, the nodes of citizenship, um, the, the bundles of rights, and people can get partially pulled in without being completely pulled in. And um, there are there are many instances we talk about um, the the political status of um, temporary residents, workers, other types of visitors. We talk about the status of undocumented persons, of children, of people who are being punished for crimes, um, and 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 use those cases to demonstrate that this idea that citizenship, because it draws boundaries, must be um, closing boundaries entirely. That that's really not actually something that the state 
wants to or is able to accomplish very fully. And so I, I wanted to also ask you, as you sort of complete the book, the the last section of the book is also about um, people who aren't citizens um, or statelessness and an understanding of, you know, sort of contemporary situations, as you, you talk about also um, those who are moving from being citizens of a place where they are potentially threatened or compromised, um, and then ending up in a situation where they do not have what we might consider the protections of citizenship. Can you talk a little bit about how the research and and the discussion of these concepts leads in that direction as well? Right. Um, I think by the time we finished writing this book, there wasn't uh, very much doubt that topics like um, refuge and refugee law, statelessness, asylum, um, are some of the most salient issues in the, um, how states practice citizenship in the 21st century. And although there is now, you know, well over half a century's worth of attempts to collaborate on the, just to prevent really extreme instances of um, differentiated or semi-citizenship where people have um, very, very diminished rights, particularly rights of place, the right to move freely and the right to have a home, a a place that will accept somebody on a permanent basis. Um, That that cooperation has failed. uh, And, and there are large numbers of displaced persons Um, people maybe who only have temporary protected status or who are um, long-term residents of camps or who are internally displaced and can't um, get any protection um, in a state, outside of a state where they don't feel safe. So we have lots of language to talk about um, extreme instances of um, where people don't have any citizenship protections but we have not, um, as as uh, members of polities, actually been able to protect people. And and you know both European countries and the U.S. and a lot of countries um, that are adjacent to recent conflicts that have produced refugees are um, kind of piecing together in many cases pretty inhumane responses to, to the, um, need the political and material needs of these individuals and families. Um, the, you know, the closing of the book is in, in, at least in my estimation, it's kind of a natural progression of the discussion of the book. I think that we couldn't not close the book in the way in which we did. And I'll try to explain why. So one of the things that, um, Elizabeth and I have really, really tried hard to point out is that citizenship is a gradient category. Elizabeth has done previous work on this, and we try to explain that it's not a binary, like an on-off switch, that you either have it or you don't. And lots of people, like disenfranchised felons, for example, or uh, you know, um, some personnel in, among in the armed forces who are denied the right to a civil trial, and um, 
uh, you know, ver- versions of semi-citizenship we see everywhere. But one of the things that we then also have to think about is not just semi-citizenship, but actually really the most, the really the most attenuated form of citizenship or personhood. And we could not, we sort of had an ethical obligation to also address that issue, which then, of course, entailed that we do, again, another clarification of the concepts. And it's a very confusing literature, like uh, who, what is a refugee? What is an economic migrant? Who is an asylum seeker? Who is an asylee? Who is an internally displaced person? Who has temporary protected status? These things are not easy for uh, an ordinary person who's not doing the research to just you know keep in mind at all times. So we try to explain what the differences are, and 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 then of course we in so doing have to address the question of statelessness. Somebody who doesn't have a um, a passport at all, and no state recognizes it or them as a member of their polity. And when we were thinking about doing that section of the of the concluding chapter, I remember Elizabeth and I going back and forth about how many sort of case studies we would look at just to explain the what's happening. And and we ended up, I think, with three or four in the beginning, and then we had to eliminate a couple of those, and we retained sort of focused case studies on two, one on the Rohingya in, in Myanmar and, and the other of the EU migration crisis. And, but we could have in, instead uh, elected to write about, uh, well, Palestinian people in the Palestinian territories and elsewhere and all sorts of other groups. Uh, but we ended up focusing on these two cases because we just wanted to uh, actually pay you know, uh, adequate attention to what was what's going on with the experience of statelessness among these these groups. And once we did that, we couldn't then not write about this very, very controversial debate within the discipline on open borders. And we then tried to explain what the arguments for and against are. And uh, we hope to bring some clarity uh, to, you know, to, to the to the debate about open borders, like why some people will say, well, you can still retain uh, cultural sovereignty and deny people access to rights and goods while opening your border. And that's an important point to make. Adam Cox makes it, for example, and we sort of, we explain all these things with the hope that um, after reading that, that section, one has a clear idea of what the main arguments are on both sides of that. Just and just to backtrack ahead, a little bit, yeah. I, sorry to speak over you. I just, um, you know, I think one of the things that is that we tried to do, and um, in order to make this book a little bit, even though it's a very um, succinct textbook that's accessible for undergraduates and graduate students um, or people who who don't work in the area but want to to um, get a quick read on citizenship, we do try as Cyril said, to, to um, apply concepts, particularly complicated concepts like refuge and asylum. And we, as he, he brought up these cases, um, we try really hard not to repeat uh, the mistake that um, some of the c- critiques of the citizenship canon have pointed out, which is focusing only on... Um, 
only on Western cases and Western um, Western understanding. So we um, in those sections include discussion of you know fact like we could have focused everything as anybody who's um, listening who's been thinking about U.S. politics recently we could have focused everything on the crisis at the southern U.S. border, which is ongoing since um, since the Obama. Administration, but we did we try to show that these are actually not just you know unusual occurrences. They're happening frequently and throughout the world. And that was what I I found to be fascinating in the way that you do close the book is that you you sort of note that these are these complicated understandings of citizenship also lead to these other components of our thinking about individuals and humans where they are and how that impacts who they are and how they conduct themselves. Um, and that then bleeds into this conversation or our consideration of, of things like borders um, and what, what are borders and how does that interact with these concepts? Um, I, I found the book to be really as you say, succinct, but very complex and um, helpful in explaining a lot of these concepts. So thank you for that. Um, And I'm hoping that uh, you will each now tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. I assume that your sort of considerations and your um, interests are continuing along these same paths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you guessed correctly. <laughs> um, I just finished the um, a new book that's coming out in January of 2020. And uh, I will say that this has been an intense year because uh, I'm not, we're not, neither of us is dashing this stuff off. So um, I finished a book on um, immigration enforcement in the United States uh, very recently. And uh, the book is a partly a history that takes people through the invention of the undocumented immigrant. Um, so looking at, you know, the fact that there was a time not that long ago when we didn't have undocumented immigrants in the United States because we didn't render anybody's presence uh, illegal. And what it did to us once we decided to, to create this category and start policing our borders um, and, and, uh, just to give a little spoiler, and the one thing it didn't do was stop undocumented immigration or change our demographics um, <laughs> with respect to immigration at all. But lots of things did happen. And so I, I um, take the reader through that history, looking at how white nationalists influenced policy, things like that, and then also um, provisions that could actually um, move us back to to a more sustainable approach to undocumented um, immigration and to our borders and border crossing more generally. So that's out January 28th, I think, in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope you'll come and talk to me about it. When it comes I can't wait. <laughs> and Cyril? Um, uh, so I'm doing a couple different things, but... Um, what Elizabeth didn't say is that she this book she's mentioning is her fourth, and I think that it takes it takes a lot of stamina uh, to to write four books. And um, so I'm 
I'm taking a little bit of a rest right now because this citizenship book is my third. So I'm working on shorter pieces. And, but more seriously, uh, the pieces, are, there's two different types of things I'm doing. One is on asylum law and sexuality and uh, the sort of sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, and sex characteristics claims that we can make when we are asking for asylum and how a receiving country adjudicates like what is a fraudulent claim and what is not. So it's work in the, uh, in, in it's work which is sort of in, in theory and law and, and sexuality. So that's one thing that I'm doing. Um, and the other thing I'm doing actually is, um, um, okay, so I'm, I'm the program chair for sexuality and politics at the APSA this year and next year I'm serving as the president and one of and one of the things we're genuinely worried about is the very uh, meager uh, appearance of uh, research in the field of sexuality and politics in mainstream political science journals now now I'm I am undecided that this is uh, the result of some some prejudice or or deliberate marginalization. I don't know if that is true. I don't think it is, but I do actually want to do some research, some content analysis on looking at just exactly how meager it is. So, I've been uh, I I presented a version of this, an early iteration of this at the APSA this year, and I'm working on this. It's an ongoing project. And, Hopefully, I will be done by the end of the spring semester with it, and I intend to uh, document the, the well, the ongoing lack of presence uh, for sexuality and politics research within the discipline. And so that's the other thing. But uh, and but uh, the asylum thing is is closer to completion. So that's what I'm doing. Well, I hope that if if one of these aspects becomes a book, that you'll also come back on the New Books podcast and talk <laughs> yes, to me about for sure. it. Um, yep. <laughs> so I wanted to thank Elizabeth Cohn and Cyril Ghosh for talking to me today about their new book, Citizenship. This is published by Polity Press in 2019, and it's part of Polity's series, Key Concepts in Political Theory. I assume one can buy this text at Polity's website. Correct. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can buy it uh, at all the all the usual suspect places. So, Powell's, <laughs> Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and everything in between. Okay. Anywhere books are sold. <laughs> Anywhere books are sold. <laughs> and I just wanted to take a moment, Lily, to thank you for all the work you do on this podcast because I listen to them yeah. all the time. I feel really fortunate. I think we're all fortunate to have you um, helping us get gain access to the array of new books that are being published and you and Heath um, are, do a huge service and I know it's it's a lot of work to read the books and, and craft the interviews and so I, I just wanted to say thank you for that. And I want to echo that for sure. Thank you. Liz. Thank you. Thank you very much for that and for joining me today. I appreciate it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? 
Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.